Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Almost 30 years ago, my soon-to-be stepfather was trying his best to be a relatable parental figure, as many do in such situations. Hearing I had an interest in the supernatural, he declared that he knew of a building, a haunted castle, nearby his home in El Dorado, California, and he'd like to show it to me. Being a reasonably snarky teenager dealing with the trauma of her parents' divorce and now her mother's insistence on moving all of us three hours away from our childhood home because of this man, I remember being a bit apprehensive about doing anything cordial with him. But... The lure of a haunted castle in the middle of California's gold country proved to be too much. I begrudgingly joined him on the 20-minute drive up Highway 49 on a hot, dusty summer day. We passed golden rolling hills and remnants of old barns and gold rush-era buildings until we reached the small town of Ione. And within seconds of our arrival, I saw a glimpse of a large red castle with a massive bell tower that looked so incredibly out of place, I gasped. We made our way up the driveway and got as close as we could to this old Romanesque-style red castle, and I don't think I'd ever seen anything like it in person in my life. And I also somehow knew, just by staring at it, that terrible things had happened there. We got out of the car and looked past the fence that stopped us from getting any further, and I asked my stepfather, what was this place? He replied, it's Preston Castle. I nudged further, inquiring what it had been before. He said, it was a school for troubled boys. As I peered through the fence, trying to get a clear look in some of the windows and pondering what it would have been like to be a young boy dropped in front of this looming structure, not knowing what could possibly be inside, my stepfather added, I spent a year here when I was a teen. I asked him what it was like, and with almost a lump in his throat and a quiet whisper, he said, I don't talk about it, and headed back to the car. Jim Littlepage, my stepfather, died in 2014, and whatever happened to him within the walls of the Preston School of Industry, he took with him to his grave. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. Preston School of Industry, or the castle as it's been known, was built between 1890 and 1894 in Ione, California. In 1890, the 230-acre parcel of land where the castle stands was purchased from the Ione Coal and Iron Company for $30 per acre, with 100 acres donated. Inmates from San Quentin and Folsom prisons helped make the bricks that make up the castle, which were then transported by rail to the School of Industry. The cornerstone was laid on December 23, 1890, with 2,500 people in attendance. What an early Christmas present. The 120-room Romanesque revival was a reform school for young male offenders. The hope was to rehabilitate, not just incarcerate. The complex was highly self-sufficient. The large acreage of the purchase allowed the boys to grow their own food, raise livestock, and learn farming trades. The 46,000-square-foot mansion had 43 fireplaces, 257 windows overlooking the tawny Amador County foothills, a tower festooned on each side by intimidating gargoyles, 
hallways bedecked with ornate wainscoting and a sandstone exterior in the Romanesque Revival architectural style, hence that now iconic red color of the castle. On the first floor, there was a reception space, the director's room, a walk-in vault attached to an office, reception and waiting areas, a dining room, bathrooms, office for the physician, and a pharmacy. The second floor was home to a dorm for the wards and 12 apartments for staff. There was also a library and reading room on this floor, various closets and storage spaces and bathrooms. On a mezzanine level, there were two bathrooms with a few tubs. The third floor, unfinished, had 12 rooms. The fourth, also unfinished, had six. In the basement, there was a playroom, separate laundry for wards and staff, shower room, and the infamous dip pool, kitchen and pantry, multiple bathrooms, furnace and fuel storage, storeroom, and bakery. Basically, Preston was massive. In its heyday, the castle boasted 1,000 total acres with 750 dedicated to farming. For 800 wards, there was a staff of 200. The entire campus included 50 buildings. Two weeks after the school was completed, the first wards moved in. It became immediately apparent that while this arrangement could provide structure and security for wards, they were under the firm control of the superintendent and were expected to adhere to strict rules and routines. And if they transgressed, they were given severe punishment. The worst offenders were held in Company B, which consisted only of a row of beds and a single toilet. Upon arrival to the castle, new wards were taken immediately to the infamous Pool of Lie to cleanse their bodies, specifically their heads. They were herded through a side door, shorn of their hair, stripped and led to a pool of harsh chemicals with only a pole for support. They were made to walk with their heads underwater about six feet to the pool's far end to rid their bodies of potential pests. Meant to target lice, the pool likely also exacerbated open wounds on the heads of many young wards, which must have been excruciating. Eventually, the state shuttered this dipping pool practice due to its inhumanity. Sadly, many of the incoming wards were afflicted with tuberculosis and or various addictions to alcohol, heroin, and opium. In an effort to rehabilitate them, their days were divided between school and learning a trade. There was a print shop, bakery, and cobbler shop where the boys could learn skills for self-preservation in the real world. The boys, ages 7 through 18, had a tennis court and a rose garden. They also had a 7,000-book library with a veranda overlooking the town. The more docile and agreeable boys were even able to live in cottages surrounding the castle and learn trades that were more lucrative and socially acceptable. But of course, idealism and reform didn't always rule the day. A Sacramento Bee article from 1897, just two years after the school opened, detailed accusations of abuse by a superintendent, E.S. O'Brien. The first paragraph noted whippings that left their backs dripping with blood. At least one of them claimed that salt had been rubbed into his wounds to add to the torture he was already suffering. The reports of ill treatment were so pervasive throughout Ione that a group of citizens threatened to storm the castle in order to see for themselves just how poorly the boys were treated. On numerous occasions, O'Brien held boys with one hand while beating them in the face with his other. He extended paddlings by 10 to 40 strokes, sometimes beating boys until they couldn't walk without assistance. A younger boy named Roderick received a beating that left him black and blue from the small of his back to the middle of his thighs. 
For several days afterwards, the boy walked around literally dragging one foot after the other, and it's said that afterward he had to be sent to the hospital. The secretary at the time, H.R. Bernard, recounted in an affidavit witnessing Dr. O'Brien beat a ward in the head and face with a cane. The cane soon broke in his hands, but O'Brien continued his blows with the part left in his hand, which was also broken a moment later from the force of the blows, when the doctor grabbed a pole about four feet long and proceeded to belabor the yelling lad over the body. The force of the blows was terrific. The same article alleged destructive and uncontrollable behavior of wards, not limited to setting the building on fire at least three times. Escape attempts were frequent and occurred nearly every week. Superintendent E.S. O'Brien told the wards in or prior to 1897 that he had given orders to the guards that in the case of an escape attempt, they were to shoot and shoot to kill. The property wasn't fenced with barbed wire, so wards had one less deterrent. When it was discovered that a ward had escaped, a horn would blow an ion, which alerted citizens to the situation. A hunt would follow, and if someone discovered and returned a ward, they received a $10 reward. The kids who escaped received corporal punishment in the form of beatings, whippings, and solitary confinement. Country singer Merle Haggard made two escape attempts during his time at Preston. He had memories of beatings with a two-by-four and a tattoo of PSI on his wrist, so he never forgot the abuse. Horrific stories of abuse and neglect became known over the years. Wards died of severe illnesses like tuberculosis. Other wards were killed by guards. During the Great Depression, parents sometimes dropped kids off at the castle, where the wards of the state received three meals a day, housing, and a chance for a stable life. All of this puts into perspective why Preston Castle would be harboring ghosts and energy today. There were an incredible number of tragedies involving wards on the grounds. The first we see was of Grant Walker on June 17, 1895. At first, it seems like he may have died from typhoid fever. However, historian Jamie Rubio dug further and found a conflicting death register that suggests Walker may have died from severe internal burns after ingesting something toxic. On October 17, 1911, Herman Hubert and fellow ward and friend John Corain made an escape just as the dinner bell rang. Well, they tried anyway. Night guard J.D. French pursued the two escapees and fired his weapon, which killed Hubert. French claimed he tried to fire a warning shot, but Corain maintained that French shot Herman in cold blood. On June 6, 1914, a company of boys went to the pond after dinner for a swim. Those who weren't strong swimmers were supposed to stay in the shallow water, but Tahima Vaughn, confident about his doggy paddle, dove in. Wards Robert Rains and Albert Rubido tried to save Vaughn after he resurfaced, clearly in a struggle. However, they were unable to retrieve him. It wasn't until the next morning that they were able to retrieve his lifeless body that had sunk to the bottom of the pond. He is buried at the Preston Cemetery. Frank Cartarella had epilepsy and experienced seizures because of it. Instead of receiving treatment, Frank was kept in his cell. It's heartbreaking to think about. On Valentine's Day 1917, Frank died by suicide after making a noose from his shredded nightshirt. In July 1918, Samuel Gloins arrived at Preston. He had been convicted of burglary. Samuel made three escape attempts, although the punishment after the first two must have been terrible— the third proved fatal. While trying to escape a third time, John Kelly, a Preston guard, accidentally shot Samuel in the back. 
Samuel died from the wound. He was 20 years old and only two months from being released from Preston. Ward Frank Algiers was admitted after having experienced a really bad motorcycle accident. After admission, he went straight to the infirmary, where he died just a week later on May 13, 1922. On July 26, 1924, Ray Baker was shot by guard Thomas Dooley. Baker was trying to escape when Dooley intervened. The ward tried to strangle the guard, who was able to retrieve his gun and shoot. Wards Edgar Howe and Leland Price got into a fight during a Saturday night football game in December 1924. In a confusing decision made to chastise the boys, Howe and Price were locked together in Preston's basement. The two wards must have picked the fight back up, or a very unfortunate coincidence occurred because Price's skull was fractured after hitting the ground and he fell into a coma. Leland Price died the next morning. On December 4, 1928, wards were digging a ditch on the property for sewage. Unexpectedly, the ditch caved in and trapped six boys. Four were extracted, but two remained buried. William Reppert and Henry Herstein both died after being buried alive. Probably the most notable and publicized death that took place at Preston was the murder of the head housekeeper on February 23, 1950. Her body was found in the then-defunct pool room, beaten with evidence of a massive struggle. She had been strangled with a cord, but the cause of her death was a fatal blow to the head resulting in a skull fracture. A rape had been attempted, but not enacted. The housekeeper was incredibly well-loved and liked by the wards and her fellow employees alike. So much so, the wards threatened vigilante justice if her killer was found. The superintendent at the time made it very clear that everyone was a suspect, even staff, and that they would be investigating thoroughly. After 657 wards were questioned, a case was formed against a ward named Eugene Monroe. He was at Preston after being convicted of burglary, but had been the prime suspect in a murder case prior to that, a murder and rape case involving the strangulation of a high school student using the same type of cord in the case of the housekeeper and tied in the same fashion. Monroe was given a lie detector test and failed, and inconsistencies in his story, plus the fact he had been caught trying to incinerate his clothing, was enough to charge him. Eugene was tried three times. The first two resulted in a hung jury, and the third reached an acquittal. In 1951, Eugene was convicted of the rape and murder of a woman in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was pregnant at the time of her death. He was given a life sentence. It is said that Preston's dark past heavily weighs on the old building and that the spirit of the housekeeper, plus so many of these wards that never made it out alive, still very much reside within its walls. There are 18 boys buried in a small cemetery on the property. Many died of natural causes, and there are certainly more deaths that took place there. But the ones buried on site most likely had no surviving family or their loved ones were financially unable to bury them elsewhere. In 1960, the Preston School of Industry closed. The state planned to demolish the building, and a group of local women fought for eight years to keep it standing. Finally, the state relinquished and said while they wouldn't tear it down, they would do nothing to keep it standing. So there it sat until 2001, when the state of California leased the property to the Preston Castle Foundation. In 2014, the foundation was granted ownership of the castle and nearly 13 acres of property. Fundraising and repairs have been the goal ever since, 
and estimates are as high as 15 to $30 million to reverse the years of abuse and neglect of the building. Up next, we'll talk to Connie Brenner, a lead paranormal investigator at Preston Castle and a member of the Preston Castle Foundation's board. We'll find out what kind of activity they experience there, in addition to how you can visit the castle and assist in their conservation efforts. So I am sitting here now with Connie Brenner, who is a lead investigator at Preston Castle and also a member of the board. She's now been involved kind of on a professional level with the castle for about two and a half years, but her history with the castle goes on even before that. So I think you've probably got some great info for us, Connie, as far as what the history at Preston what has happened haunting-wise there due to what happened there when it was in operation. Yes, yes, absolutely. So can you just kind of tell me um, how you came about being involved with Preston? I started out as just a guest one night. A friend of mine was involved with the castle and she's like, okay, you know, you totally got to come up here and check this place out because we had just kind of gotten started in the whole paranormal field. I went up there for a public investigation and I had never really had any crazy experiences. And like right off the bat that night, I mean, I think I, I don't know. I saw like the Holy grail of, you know, in doing the paranormal stuff where I actually saw a full body apparition. We were in a, the doctor's office and Mm -hmm. I was facing the doorway into the hall And I saw what looked like a man in a white jacket walk right past the door. And there was another group located in the castle, but they were pretty far and like not even really close to that area. And so one of the girls that had had her back to that doorway, I asked her, you know, did somebody just walk by? And she went out there and looked and she says, there's nobody I mean, it was pretty quick that she went and looked. It just, you know, it took me a second to realize that, oh my gosh, I just saw, you know, an apparition walk right past the door. So I bet you were hooked at that point. I mean, that's all it takes. You either at that point, you're completely terrified and never want to do it again, or your interest is peaked. It was definitely peaked. And, you know, I also got touched that night. We have an infirmary area in the castle and... I was touched. You know, there was nothing that could have bumped into me. It wasn't my clothing. And so whoever's there was definitely getting my attention. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say they were wearing a lab coat, like they were maybe a doctor or someone that, you know, obviously tended to the, I guess they called them inmates there or whatever they called them. I wouldn't say patients even, but who do you think that could possibly be? I think it was a doctor. You know, I think to me, now that I know a whole lot more, but definitely seemed like a residual type haunting because it wasn't like it stopped and waved, you know, through the doorway. It was almost as if he was just going about his business, you know, maybe checking in on the patients that were there. They actually called them wards. 
I apparently he was also seen by another guest earlier that evening in the same area. He was definitely making his rounds then. I mean, it's interesting. I'm I'm hoping that no one, you know, in your group was running around in a lab coat or anything. So no, no. <laughs> no, and it's interesting because he was see-through, but I could also see that in in a weird sort of I don't even know how to describe it, but like he had like he had dark hair. You know, if it was a guy that was a part of the investigation that night, you know, usually, usually if you're going to wear some sort of a jacket, it has logos or something on it. But this definitely did not. No, no, definitely not. That's interesting just because I think about Preston Castle's history. And I wanted to ask you about that a little bit because obviously it's a very historic place. The history there is very dark. And I mentioned kind of in the beginning of the show, my stepfather actually spent time there when he was a teen, and he would never speak of it. And he was a pretty, he was an open book. He passed away in 2014, but his time at Preston, he never spoke of, not even to my mom. He said it was a a horrible experience, basically. It's the most we could get out of him. And so how do you, obviously, for historical purposes, we want Preston Castle to stick around. People work really hard to make sure that it's still standing and it's it's got the foundation and everything. How do you all reconcile kind of the history and what you do? We go in, we are extremely respectful of the spirits that could be there. You know, we have to think about how young that the kids were that were there, you know, we think that there could have been kids as young as seven. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we try really hard to be somewhat, I don't know, maybe nurturing towards the children that were there because it wasn't all fun and games there. This, it was run military style. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure there were plenty of success stories that came out of there as well. But just having that kind of firsthand knowledge, but then also just kind of reading through the history. I do that, too, where I kind of look back on it and I think, you know, what was it like to be dropped off there as a young boy and just not even know what was coming to you? And, and you know, some people were sent there because they genuinely had... um issues that needed to be taken care of. And then others were sent there just because their parents couldn't take care of them anymore, you know, especially during the depression. And so I think that's great that you guys approach it in that way of being kind of nurturing and, you know, humanizing them, which I think is huge. Right, right. This is their home. We are guests in their home. And we tell all of our guests, this is not a place to come in and demand and treat the boys Even if there's staff around there, we really come in there with kind of love and respect for entities or spirits that are there. So that's definitely our approach when it comes to that. And I think it works because they're still around, (laughs) you know, they're there. And since COVID and, you know, the fact that we had to be shut down for a year, things have really ramped up. We're getting a ton of activity now. I'm sure. And actually, that's something that we've noticed in our investigations, especially in some of these larger places that, you know, the only real visitors they get are historians or, you know, people visiting in the museum sense, but then also paranormal investigators are the ones that really interact. 
And I think in some cases, the spirits really missed that. And, you know, when we come back in, you know, when Adam and I investigate or if I'm out investigating, it's, it's interesting how eager they are to speak again. Like, I can't imagine. I don't I don't claim to know what time is like for them. I don't <laughs> claim to know how any of that works. But it does seem like they're more eager to interact at the moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, and we have different stuff. Like, going in there, we have our hot spots and all that other stuff, but it's changed and we're getting more activity in areas that we never used to, which makes it really interesting and exciting, you know, for us because we're like, okay, you know, we get to kind of show people different areas and all that other stuff. I mean, you know, we try to actually let them kind of discover it themselves. We try not to give them too much information, you know, but we're able to validate that after they talk with us when and if they have an experience. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I know, like, it was open during the the Spanish flu pandemic. And I was reading through the history because we felt like that a pandemic might be kind of triggering for some of these older locations that had kind of been through it. And remarkably, I guess a lot of people had the flu in Preston, but they didn't lose anyone, which was kind of unheard of for that amount of people coming down with the flu back then. So just an interesting fact I found when I was digging through the history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy to think, you know, something like that, that they didn't lose people like, I guess you could say we are now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah it's, it's very interesting how that all happens. So what is the state of the castle right now? Obviously, post-pandemic, you guys are probably bringing people back in. But how are things going? I haven't been, unfortunately, in a few years. I used to go quite often just because it was about 25 minutes away from my family home, which now my sister and her husband own, but it was originally built by my stepfather. And so I can't remember the last time I was there. I think it must have been about seven or eight years ago. So how, how are things going there now? Things are great, actually. You know, we've done so much as far as, you know, the construction of the castle or the reconstruction of the castle. We've been able to um, do a lot of repairs. I mean, there's so much repair that needs to be done to that place. I doubt I will ever see it completed in my lifetime. And maybe not even my son's, who's like, you know, he's 17 or almost 17. And there's just so much. And, you know, it's, extremely expensive to do all the repairs on this castle. But, you know, we just keep kind of plugging away at it a little bit at a time. Our parking lot is no longer a gravel parking lot. We <sighs> actually have asphalt now, and which is great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, trying to repair some of the windows. And there are areas in the castle, I don't know if you remember, but where there was no floor from like the basement to like the fifth floor, you know, that is still unfortunately in that type of condition. I do remember that. I do remember that. It's still, you know, empty in there. You can still see all the way up, but there are areas that are, the floor has been replaced. Unfortunately, they're not open to the public yet, but the public still has three floors to do their investigations or tours which, you know, the castle's huge. It's shaped like a giant T. Yeah, there's no shortage of space in there. I remember roaming those halls. And I do remember, actually, because we were doing a public investigation there many years ago. And I do remember, I think, 
there was some sort of fire code. We got shut down by the by the fire department or something because not dur- this was before the event happened because they were waiting to get sprinklers installed or something. And that's just indicative of like what you face when you're trying to get these historic places up and running and not necessarily running, but just keeping them open so people don't forget that places like this existed. And so, you know, how important do you think the haunting aspect is in keeping Preston open? Because I find that some of these historic places, I don't know that they all fully grasp how important their ghosts can be for them as far as funding and raising interest. Um, It's huge, honestly. We have so many different events that we do up there at the castle, even like the day tours. During the day tours, people ask, you know, all the time about, is this place haunted? Or if they know that we do paranormal investigations there, they want the information on how to get involved in that. I have people wanting to be actually on the paranormal team and it's huge. I think that if we didn't do our paranormal investigations, it would definitely play a loss in the interest in coming up there. I mean, and I'm not undermining the day tours because the day tours are phenomenal, but the place takes on a whole different feel when it gets dark versus the daytime. Have you ever had any of your daytime tour attendees have experiences that they didn't expect? You know, I don't know 100%, but I would not be surprised because even myself, when I've been there during the day, I've had my hair tugged. I've had whispers in my ear. You know, I've seen things. So I would not doubt that the guests during the day don't have their own paranormal experience there. Yeah. What would you say the majority of the activity is like there? We have... And it seems lately we've been getting a lot of disembodied voices where we're all in one room and it sounds like there's conversations going on. I remember my actual first night of running the paranormal investigation and I heard, we all heard, we were in the infirmary and everybody in the group heard talking. And I thought, somebody had broken in to the grounds and were out walking the grounds to the castle. And I panicked <laughs> because like this is my first night and, you know, somebody broke in and I truly panicked. But after a couple of the docents went outside to take a look, there was nobody there. And right. so, I mean, not only did we hear voices, but we heard footsteps too at the same time. Wow. So we get a lot of that, you will hear voices all throughout the castle, day and night, in my experience. Now, what would you say is the most commonly reported activity in the castle? Probably the most common is the disembodied voices. And that seems to be what we're getting most of all right now. We have seen some white mists lately, and, you know, it's it's pretty hot in the castle right now. So there's really nothing weather related that would necessarily cause that, you know, like the cold or, you know, somebody's breath or anything like that. Also, we've got a couple of shadow figures that we've been seeing also in a couple of the rooms. One of our docents, she just recently saw her first shadow figure 
and oh. she's never seen what I mean she's been doing this and she's been to like she's been to so many different places that you would see that kind of stuff but this was her first time seeing the shadow man oh gosh and now this mist that you're describing is it taking the shape of like figures or is it just kind of a mist hanging in the castle itself I haven't seen it where it's taking actual, you know, the shape of a figure. Some of it seems to be kind of just forming and then like floating around, um, but staying together in like, not, I don't not even know how to describe it. Again, not the form of a figure, but just not spread out as what you would see like fogs or anything like that. Right. I do remember when I was there with Ghost Hunters, there was reports of a mist hanging in, there was like a really tall and open area. I feel like it was where the wards used to be. There used to be beds in there. But I do remember, it seemed like it was almost an attic or something. It's been so long. I do remember there was an owl in there that was attacking me. <laughs> I do remember an owl swooping down. We So, you know, when when I'm talking to um, the guests that come, I tell them that we have our own ecosystem in there. And so the owls, um, we've had fox, we've had, you know, other critters in there and the bats, the bats. We have a lot of bats. Yeah. So I've been attacked by many a bat. I think that still stands as the only owl it scared the crap out of me because I was just standing there and this thing swooped down across the room and I could feel the breeze of it like going over my head. <laughs> so um, It was probably in Company B because we had an owl in there for quite a while. Most of the time they stay up in the tower, you know, but ah. you can hear them. Of course, when their chicks hatch, they are screaming all night. Oh, I'm sure. Well, yeah. So that, if it was company B, then yeah, I do remember specifically looking for this mist hanging in the room. I did not witness it, but it's just such an interesting phenomena that you don't hear about that often. Kind of all, along those lines, what do you think would cause something like that? Or why do you think that would be happening at the castle? You know, it's really hard to say. I do feel like things are trying to manifest there and that's just their way of coming through in the form of a mist whether it's the energy that the guests and us are providing for them or just whatever equipment that we have going at that time it's i don't know it's really hard to say you know the mist thing is is a little new for me right as far as that goes there and i mean i'd heard about it but I've actually just recently, just since we've opened up this year is when I've seen the mists and as well as some of the other docents, that's what they're reporting. How is Preston Castle kind of received in Ione? Is the town really interested in seeing it kind of succeed? You know, how do they feel about the ghostly history being so prevalent? Do you guys ever get any pushback or are people mostly very welcoming of it? I think the town is pretty welcoming of it. I mean, if anybody's been there, the castle sits on top of a hill that overlooks the entire town, which is super, super tiny. But you will see, you know, if you go to the different restaurants or shops in the town, you can see some picture of the castle, whether it's part of their logo or whatever. But the castle, the way that it sits looking over this town, it's not something that you can miss. Um, 
it's hard to say. It seems like they're pretty open to it. There's, of course, with anything, you're going to have people that say, no, no, it's not haunted. There's nothing there. And then your fair share of people that are like, oh my God, I've been there. And yes, it's totally haunted. So, um, you know, it's, it's probably a mixture. How often do you have people kind of visit the castle who actually spent time there or worked there? I believe we have one volunteer that actually worked there, or maybe he was a ward there. I can't remember, but we do have quite a few people that'll come through. We had an event not that long ago, or I should say it feels like over a year ago now, <laughs> that he was visiting. I think he said he was visiting from Oregon or he had been out of state. And he came back, I was talking to him and he was telling me about spending time in one of the units called Tamarack. And that is the solitary confinement unit. It, like he was really shook up just talking to me about it. He said that he had actually never been in or was never part of the main building of the castle. But he said his experience in Tamarack was just, it was not good. But he had come up there, I guess, I don't know, like just to resolve things with himself. I, I'm not sure. But yeah, we do. We do have people coming up there and talking about how either they spent time or that they had family members that either spent time or worked there. When people bring things like that up or when they kind of talk about what it was like there or even just kind of what the routine was and things, does that ever seem to instigate activity? I don't know. I don't know. You know, when I was talking to this particular guy, we were outside. I don't even know if he had gone inside. I think it was just more of him sitting on the grounds or standing on the grounds talking to me. But I don't see why it wouldn't. People coming through there, it could definitely spark some of the activity. Have you ever gotten anything identifiable or as far as who could be haunting Preston? Or are there any ghosts that you think you know who they are specifically? You know, I don't think we've gotten any specific ghosts or people that had been there. It's really hard to say. We suspect, but I, I don't think, you know, we've never really gotten solid confirmation of any names or anything like that while we've uh, been investigating. And it seems like, you know, a lot of the activity you describe is pretty residual in nature, meaning that it's almost like a recording playing over and over for people listening, like the energy of someone just kind of going about their routine. Is there anything there that you would say is maybe more intelligent or like seeking some sort of help or needing something? I definitely sense that there is one particular one that we've all kind of had some sort of interaction with down in the basement area or the intake room, which is where the boys came in. And I've seen him as a shadow. I've felt him as, oh gosh, I, like he's followed me through the basement before. And it's definitely a male presence. And sometimes we've, like I said, we've seen him kind of walking back and forth, but more of a shadow figure. And that one in particular, I think is intelligent and definitely interactive. Okay, so the intake room, was that the room that had the pool? Didn't they have some sort of pool that they kind of washed them 
I think they stopped using it eventually because it was harmful. But was that where that was? Yeah. So they enter in through the intake and then immediately they were taken into what we call the delousing pool, which um, is, I think, is barbaric. Personally, yeah, they were just, you know, thrown into this pool, whether they knew how to swim or or not with chemicals and all the other stuff. And not to mention that the staff kitchen was like right across from that, which kind of grosses me out to think that, you know, those chemicals in there could have been kind of floating around. But yes, that's where we feel a presence for sure. And we've seen you know, a shadow down there. And it's definitely male. Okay. Aside from that area, are there any other like major hot spots in the castle where you feel like there's just, I know the infirmary, because that's where you saw the doctor or where the doctor was seen, right? Is there anywhere else that you feel like it's almost like guaranteed activity if you go into a space? So yeah, the infirmary, the basement, the basement's definitely a hot spot because we have like a chapel school area that we've gotten you know, some activity in. We just had an investigation this last Saturday and they were getting activity up in company B. That isn't, you know, typically, um, I would say a hot spot, but once in a while we do get that. And also on the second floor lately, we've been getting some activity down the hall. We actually, us as docents, got some activity in the visitor center, which is kind of what we call home base, where we had, um, we were sitting there, there was three of us, and we probably were sitting there for a good 45 minutes to an hour, and there's like this little sink area, and all of a sudden, we heard this big bang, and we went over there, and it appeared that a knife fell off one of the shelves, Mm. and hit, I mean, like, nothing there was nothing there that could have knocked it down or anything. And the fact that we were just sitting there for so long and nothing had happened and then boom, you know, this knife falls off the shelf. So I don't know. (laughs) That's pretty wild. Is there any activity that people experience there that you think has like violent or aggressive tendencies, like any scratches or pushing or anything like that? No, I don't think so. We've had one instance of a scratch not that long ago. She, you know, is an intuitive and she didn't feel threatened by the scratch. I think she felt more that they were trying to get her attention. And that was down again in that basement area. And it might've been that male presence that we all feel down in there. And as far as pushing, maybe people have reported occasionally a push But I personally don't feel that there's anything bad there or evil or violent or anything like that. I think that it's more um, that they're just, besides the residual that we have there, they're just trying to get our attention. Right. I mean, I think that sometimes aggressive activity is just that and it's mistaken for something more, you know, sinister. But sometimes I think that some entities just really want to get your attention. And when they realize they can touch you or imagine being that desperate, like you're trying to get some sort of message across and you desperately reach out to someone. And sometimes I think that is kind of misconstrued as negative type activity. Well, you know, I have a lot 
of respect for everything you guys are doing at Preston. I know this last year has been incredibly hard for historic locations, but it sounds like you guys are back up and running and have a lot happening soon. So if people want to visit, what can they do and what do you have coming up that people might be interested in? Definitely check out our website, which is PrestonCastle.org. And we have a huge event coming up, which is our Halloween haunt. It's one of our biggest events of the year. And that will be all through October on Friday and Saturday nights, starting October 15th. And they can go to the website to purchase tickets, but they are selling fast. We sell out fast on this you don't want to miss it. It's three floors of the castle and it's just, it's amazing. And we change it up every year. And so the people that have come through in years past absolutely love it. Well, that's great. And obviously all the money raised goes to a great cause and that's fabulous. Hopefully I'll be able to get back out there soon. I will be visiting family soon. So I, I will have to pop by the castle and say hi. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. And hopefully I will see you soon. All right. Thank you, Amy. I have to admit, after researching Preston so intensely and hearing the stories that came out of that building, I wondered why we're all so intent on preserving it. But there is something special about that red castle, so out of place in the California foothills. Architecturally alone, its significance cannot be denied. And yes, there were tragedies, but there were also many who left there changed and reformed who might not have had the lives they did without some intervention. I also feel like repurposing the space into something more positive can be a forever reminder of the growth and evolution we and all of society is capable of. It can also serve as a reminder of a place we don't want to go back to. So I urge you to explore the California foothills, particularly Amador and El Dorado counties, often overlooked areas closer to Nevada than they are to San Francisco or Los Angeles, and they're filled with gold rush history and ghosts. And as you do, make the stop in Ione to see the castle. If you can, book a tour or a ghost hunt and let them know you know a former local, me. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Taylor Hagerdorn is the show's researcher. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.